Uh, we are so excited to get to partner with Loving Choices, one of our partner ministries here in Northwest Arkansas, and we're so grateful for the work that they do as they come alongside moms who are in crisis pregnancies and point them towards encouragement and hope in Jesus. And we're excited that we have a chance to partner with them again this year through our baby bottle fundraiser. So out in the foyer, there's gonna be some baby bottles set up after the service. We encourage you to grab one of those and over the next couple weeks, uh, any, any cash or change, go ahead and fill those bottles up and you can bring them back either next Sunday, the 24th, or on October 31st and we can help support this incredible ministry uh, of loving choices. Well, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome to those of you here in the room and also those that are with us uh, online. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Uh, my name is Andy Petrie, and I am so grateful to serve as the ministry leader for Celebrate Recovery here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And if you're not familiar with what Celebrate Recovery is, uh, it's a ministry that exists to uh, help the church provide a safe place for us to find healing and hope as we deal with life's hurts and struggles. Uh, it's a safe place for us to find encouragement and vulnerability and community in Jesus. And, and I love that it has allowed fellowship to be a safe place for us to be broken together, where it's okay to not be okay, but we can still walk towards Jesus together as we watch him change our lives. And it's been really cool to see what God has been doing through Celebrate Recovery here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, I was meeting uh, with, with a guy in his early 20s at, as he just started attending here. And uh, I asked him what the impact of Celebrate Recovery has been on his life. And he said, you know, Andy, it's been incredible. I've been able to share and process and heal more in the past six weeks than I have in the past 15 years. And he shared about how it taught him to actually truly be vulnerable for the first time in his life. And he started talking to me about joining a Celebrate Recovery small group called a Step Study. Uh, and then I was meeting a couple months ago with, with another guy who was in a rough spot with his struggles and an even rougher spot in his marriage because of his struggles. And he was a follower of Jesus. He wanted to change, had tried for years to change, but just didn't know how and didn't think he could. And just a few weeks ago, I watched him celebrate over 90 days of freedom and sobriety from what he was dealing with and start watching his wife jump into the process as well. And speaking of step studies, just a little bit earlier, we had some step studies finish up that actually started last October and they just finished up and, and one person when asked, hey, what was the impact of a step study within your life? This is what she had to say and I love this so much. <clears throat> She said, my struggle with guilt and shame mostly dissipated during our time together. I was able to forgive myself, truly believe that God forgives me, and be accepted by loving sisters who I was sure were going to be disappointed and judgmental of me when we started this. And so it's just been incredible to watch the, the hope and the life change that God has been working through Celebrate Recovery here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And we're so excited where he's leading us and, and, and where we're continuing to go. Right now, we've got two open step study groups. We've got a men's group open on Thursday mornings, and we've got a women's group that's going to be opening up on Tuesday nights starting on October 26th. And, and, and there's room available in that. And so if you've been wondering if you should jump into a step study, now's the time. Jump on in. I promise you will not regret it. <clears throat> and as always, we always want to invite you to come and check out Celebrate Recovery here in this room every single Friday night uh, here at seven o'clock. But we especially want to invite you on October 29th, Friday, October 29th. We're going to be having a very special topic night over anxiety, talking about what anxiety is, what anxiety isn't. And 
how we can actually still walk in freedom and hope even though we might experience anxiety within our lives. And so we'd love to see you there and you can find more information out about that on Fellowship News this coming week. Well, as we uh, continue into worship this morning, uh, I wanna take a moment, and, you know, especially as we talk about anxiety and worry and the, the lack of peace that I'm sure so many of us are familiar with during these times. I wanna take a second and remind us as, as a church together of the peace of God that holds our hearts together this morning. You know, I don't know your story. I don't know what sort of baggage or chaos you, you walked in here with today. But one thing I do know is that it's not a mistake that you're here and that we have a God that knows us and loves us and is big enough to carry whatever we're carrying in here with us as we walk closer to him. And he promises to walk with us and guide us as we go through that. And so to that end, let's hear the promises that God gives us out of Psalm 23, where his word tells us this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's worship this morning.
Would you stand with us and sing this? this for us. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. 
This morning, we thank you for that truth. Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that you who knew no sin became sin so that we may be called the righteousness of God. Lord, it is only through your son, Jesus, it is only through him that we find the rest that our souls long for. It is only through your son, Jesus, that we find the peace that we long for. Lord, this morning, would you teach us what it looks like to be your disciple, to live in your kingdom with you as our king, the only king that will lay his life down for his people. So God, we give this morning to you and ask that you would teach us from your word that we may leave here. Your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we today? I love the Dobro. I'm a sucker for the Dobro. Uh, I'm not going to comment on the officiating yesterday. Just put it behind us. Um, so I just did. Yeah, you're right. I just did. Um, my name's Garland, and uh, we're so glad that you uh, joined us here to worship this morning. Uh, I just have a moment of kind of transparency uh, with y'all this morning. Uh, I've been uh, trying to follow Jesus for, for over 20 years now, and the last several years, it's, uh, there's a particular thing that's been just really uh, saddening to me and frustrating to me and really disappointing to me. And, and I'm sure many of you have probably noticed it in the room. It seems as if we can't go maybe more than, I don't know, a month, six weeks without just another example of a church leader who has a massive moral failure or a church that gets taken, that gets taken over by greed and, and people that are just looking to take from the church or we see examples of scandal and abuse and cover up and, and this leaves just this really disappointed and frustrated taste in my mouth as I see what's going on. And it seems like it's just one hit after another in our world lately, both in our country and also just globally. And, it's, and it makes me angry and it makes me sad and it, it causes a lot of doubt for me, like what is going on in, in, in the church? And if you're here this morning, maybe you're going like, man, I, I see that and I've been watching what's going on and, and it makes me question this whole thing. Like I've got doubts and I'm skeptical about the whole thing called the church. It doesn't seem any different than human institutions. It's, in fact, it seems like it's got some things that are worse about it. I hear that. If you're here this morning and you, and you felt that or you thought that, in fact, I, I, if you're here this morning and I hear this all the time, people saying things like, I, I feel like I can just follow Jesus. I don't even really need the church. The church is passe. It's antiquated. It's, uh, it's a big institution. I don't need that thing. Then I hear that. And I understand that. I get why you would feel that. And if you got some of those doubts or maybe you came from a background or a church where somebody did something and it really wounded you, we hope that, uh, that you might be able to find healing even, uh, even here or in a small group or in discipleship. I'm, we're here with you and we hear that and I hear that from you. Here's what I'd like to do this morning though. I mean, I've been frustrated and, and saddened watching this happen. What I'd like to do, and I think Paul's gonna help us to do this as we continue our study, is I just wanna simply hit the reset button on what Paul's gonna call the house of God this morning, this thing called the church. Paul's gonna give us some unbelievable truths about the church this morning. They might be a little bit surprising uh, to some of us in the room, and I hope that if we could see it, if we could understand it, it might change how we interact with each other in this whole thing. It might even change how you live your life. 
We're going to continue our study of this ancient letter from uh, the Apostle Paul to his friend Timothy. And here's our three points as we work through this uh, today. Here's kind of our outline as we go this morning. We're going to see what is the church. It's nature. What does it do? It's lifestyle. And lastly, what fuels it? What's the power for God's church? So the nature of God's church, the lifestyle of God's church, and the power of God's church. If you have your Bibles, open them with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's continue our study. While you're turning there, let me give you a, a really cool opportunity coming our way. Uh, it'll be on Fellowship News, but you can get your phone and hit the QR code right now. If you're enjoying our time here in 1 Timothy, we're actually going to have the privilege of having uh, Dr. Yarborough. He is the new president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a world-class New Testament scholar. He's going to be coming up to Fellowship here in just a few weeks. It'll be up at the Rogers campus, and he's just going to do a, a half-day walkthrough of of this letter. So if you're going, man, I would love to get insights from the book that we've been studying from my own personal study and my discipleship from a world-class Bible scholar, then hit the QR code or go to Fellowship News because it's gonna be happening here in a few weeks. I bet we'll run out of space. So uh, sign up quickly, sign up today and reserve your spot. Uh, that's coming up here in just a few weeks. Um, but let's move on. Let's get to our, our passage. Here we go. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3. Look at what Paul says. He says, I hope to come to you soon, and I am writing you these instructions so that, now quick time out, anytime you see in an ancient letter like this, or even just a modern day email, somebody saying, hey, I'm writing this to you so that you might dot, 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 note that, highlight that, underline that. Paul has been working his way through instructing this church on what it looks like for their, how their character should be and what their leadership should be and how they should pray and how they should go about operating in a pagan city called Ephesus. And he, he kind of re-ups why he's even writing this letter. Hey, I'm writing this to you so that... He continues, verse 15, if I'm delayed, I want to come see you. I want to come visit this city that I spent two and a half years planting this church. But if I am delayed, Timothy, I want you to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, he says. Now, we're going to come back to the conduct. That's going to be our second point, the lifestyle of the church in a minute. But let's see what Paul says. It's almost like Paul can't help himself. He introduces the concept of the church by calling it God's household, and then he just heaps up the phrases describing this thing called God's household. Look at what he says right after this. He goes, so you know how to conduct yourself in God's household, and by the way, it's the church of the living God, and by the way, it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. He's giving us some incredible phrases to describe this thing called the church, but they might go right over our heads because we're not in their ancient historical context. What does he mean by this? I'm telling you, they're amazing. But you're not looking at me like they're amazing. So we've got to get into the, the first century Roman world and understand what Paul means by these words. What's the social historical context by which he says these words? And to do that, we've got to dive into the ancient city of Ephesus. You see, all of this language, the house of God, where, the, where God makes his living, the pillar and foundation of truth, for anyone reading this in ancient Ephesus, there's, there's going to be some very clear ideas come to their head. This is temple language. There were temples all over the city of Ephesus. Temples to the, to the Caesar, temples to the God of Rome, Roma, temples to Poseidon, and the one that dwarfed them all, the Mac Daddy Temple in the city of Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. At the time, it's the largest building in the world. This thing dwarfs the Parthenon in Athens. It's huge, and it, it, dotted, it was at the top of the landscape, the top of the Acropolis in the city 
of Ephesus. The ancient reader of, Timoth- of Paul's letter to Timothy, they're gonna know exactly what Paul has in mind when he starts using this language. It's temple language. This is the temple to Artemis. She is a fertility goddess. She, she provides uh, the food that we need, the crops to grow, the hunts to be successful. She provides our children and our heirs. And all of that is, is important. It's significant for survival in the middle of the temple. And you can see it's, it's, it's beautiful, this temple, these gigantic columns. And in the middle was a huge statue dedicated to Artemis. They've erected this, this idol and set it right in the middle, and all the region wide, they know that Artemis is prized in the city of Ephesus. Lots of cities worship Artemis, but they have the great goddess Artemis here in Ephesus. And Paul uses temple language that's really, really familiar to his audience. And it made me to think, how did temples even work in the ancient Roman world? What's the purpose and the function of a temple, and I thought, well, let's just draw it out. How do temples work in the ancient world? Here's the function of a temple. The temple is the dwelling place. It's the meeting place of the deity and the people. They have a very symbiotic relationship. Follow this. Here's how it worked in the ancient Greco-Roman, near, ancient Near Eastern world. We, the people, we need to appease the gods. There's gods for everything. The sun, the moon, the rain, the storms, the crops, love, sex, romance, gods for everything. And we want to appease those gods, because if we don't, those gods will get angry with us and they'll destroy our city and we might die. Therefore, how do we appease those gods? We bring them sacrifices. We do certain rituals. We behave certain ways that the gods are happy with us. And therefore, they look down on us. They see how well we're treating them. And then they would come and bring blessing to our city instead of a curse. That's why, by the way, they put an idol statue of that temple, uh, of that deity in the temple. They know that the idol is not actually God, but the statue embodies the presence and the power of that deity in sacred space. And all of that ritual and behavior, it happens at the temple. The temple is the place where the deity and the people come together to meet. It's where you would see that deity's presence in the world. Let me me describe it. There's a supernatural power And our job is to behave a certain way and do certain rituals so that that supernatural power is pleased with us and comes and dispenses presents and gifts to us instead of the opposite. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds almost exactly like what a lot of us do. It sounds exactly like Santa, does it not? There's a supernatural power. It's kind of out there. It's not, whole, it's not all that involved in my life. It's a being and a power, and I need, to, I need to appease this being, this supernatural force, and if I appease that supernatural being, then it will come, and it will bring me gifts and not the other thing. By the way, when I was Googling for this picture, there's a website dedicated entirely to just creepy Santa photos. This was my favorite one right here. <laughs> If I saw that Santa, I would take my kids and run, all right? And that's the right thing to do. I don't know what parent would let their kids near this Santa. Uh, And the kids are responding appropriately in this photograph. Um, If you think about it, most Americans, most Americans, I should take this Santa off the screen, but I'm gonna leave it just because I'm a terrible person. Um, Most Americans, they live their spiritual life essentially like this, just like the ancient Greco-Romans. The gods aren't that involved in my life. If there's a force or a love force or some great thing out there, it's not very involved in my life. And I sure hope that when bad things happen, I can talk to whatever this force is, this being is, and it might 
give me some kind of hope in the moment. And I sure hope at the end of all this thing, it's gonna give me blessings and a good, happy, healthy life. And my kids have a good, happy, and healthy life. So I'll, I'll do certain things and try to be a good person. So that the, whatever this force is or God or whatever it may be, will be happy with me. And here's what's sad. Most Christians that I talk to essentially treat God in a similar fashion. Very distant from my life, not all that involved. Might as well be a thousand miles away on the North Pole. I kind of need him every once in a while when something really bad happens and I sure hope he gives me presence and I hope that my obedience, that my lifestyle will be good enough for him to bless me with good things and not bad things. That's how most Americans that I've encountered and most even Christians, a lot of Christians that I've talked to, treat God. It's very much like this ancient Greco-Roman idea. Now, this is going to be the opposite of what Paul's going to say about this thing called the church. Those of us in this room that are in Christ, Paul's going to say, your experience could not be more different than that. Let's unpack these ideas that Paul teaches us here. Look at what he says. I want you to know how to conduct yourself in God's household. Now, when we see household, I think a lot of us, we think, okay, my nuclear family, my house with my backyard, that's the household. That might be what Paul has in mind. Definitely didn't have less than that in mind, but he has so much more than that in mind. When Paul says the household of God, what he has in mind is temple language. Look at what he says in the letter to the Ephesians. Same city, just a few years apart. He says, by the way, he's talking to a multi-ethnic Jew and Gentile church that's trying to come together and put aside all the things that would divide them and unite on loyalty to Jesus. Go read Ephesians, it's wild. And in the middle of that, he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but now you've been made fellow citizens with God's people and are members of his household. What's the household to Paul? Look at verse 20. Temple, temple language, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. It's the stone you would lay first that makes sure all the other stones are laid in a straight line that makes a solid foundation to build the building on. Look at verse 21. In him, in Jesus, this building, this temple is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Do you see what Paul is saying? What he's saying is the meeting place of the divine and people, it's not in a building now. It's not in a structure. He said, it's you. That's where the beauty and power and justice and goodness of the God of the Bible comes to meet people in this world. You. He's not, he's not done. Look at the next thing he says. He says, by the way, you are the assembly, the ecclesia. To kaleo is to call someone and ek, call them out. You've been called out and made into an assembly, he says. An assembly of the living God. Not an idol in a temple on a hill. Not a dead statue made of stone or marble. He says, no, 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 no. The living God. The God who wants to bring his goodness, his blessing, his justice, his rightness into the world, his grace and his mercy. That God who wants to bring impact into your city, Ephesus and Fayetteville. He says, you're the assembly of the living God where he lives and dwells. This is literally what the New Testament church has been about from the very beginning. If you remember the birthday of this thing we call the church, we probably should celebrate it. It's pretty awesome. In Acts chapter two, we get the birthday of this thing called the church. Just notice it. When the day of Pentecost, this is 50 days after the Passover when, uh, when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, scholars place this either in 30 AD or 33 AD. So you can do the math on when this took place in relation to us. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Verse two, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be flames that looked like tongues and it came and rest on them. Now, time out. Those of you that have read your Old Testament, which I hope is many of you, where do you see wind and storm and fire in your Old Testament? You don't have to shout it out, but think about it. We get that with Elijah, right? When he goes and hides in the mountain and sees, the, uh, and sees God. We get it with Moses. The, the biggest example is gonna be Moses on Sinai. Remember, he calls the nation of Israel to himself and says, I'm gonna make you a holy nation to bring my blessing out to the world. And he manifests his presence to them by cloud and by fire. It's the presence of God in the world. But look at what we see here. If you've read Acts 2 your whole life and missed these few little words, then this might change how you see everything about the New Testament church. Look at these words. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, separated, and came to rest, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, not in a building, came to rest on each one of them. This is unbelievable insight. The Spirit of God, he now inhabits each one of those that are in Christ. The Shekinah glory of God is with and in you and me. That's what he means when he says you're the church of the living God. And he says you're the pillar and foundation of the truth. You could see the pillars and the foundation stones of the temple of Artemis from miles around. You knew it. You saw it. You knew whose city you were in. You knew whose presence you were in when you, when you approached the ancient city of Ephesus. And Paul says, you're the pillar and the foundation of the truth. You know it. You can see it. The manifestation of the creator God's mercy and goodness and justice in this world is seen in you and me. That's unbelievable truth. This is an unbelievable picture of the nature of God's church. I mean, he's loading up the, the mental and the theological ideas for you and me to put in our brains and in our hearts. Can I tell you what this ain't? It ain't a Sunday ritual. It ain't an organization. It ain't an institution. And worse yet, it ain't a club or a hobby. If you're treating church, if this is a club or a hobby where you go to kind of network some, and you know, when we're in town and we kind of like it, we'll go today. We'll, we'll make church a priority yeah, today. If that's what this is, kind of a, like you would treat a club, that's lame. This is a lame hobby. Buy golf clubs. Get a boat. There's better hobbies than this. Do you see what we're part of? If we understand what Paul's saying, I hope that if you're in Christ in the room, you're going, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing. Yes, this is what we're a part of. It's the nature of God's church, and it's gonna come with implication. Look at the lifestyle. He says, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself. I want you guys to know how you ought to conduct themselves in God's household. We get, I think, interesting insight into Paul's understanding of how our brains work, our psychology works. Paul knows that our motivations in our behavior are really important. Think about it. 
For long-term lifestyle change, motivations are everything to produce long-term behavior. Paul knows this, look what he does. He says, I want you to know how to conduct yourselves. I'm giving you lots of commands, but let me heap up on you motivation. You're where God dwells. Because he knows motivation matters. If you don't believe me that motivation matters, how do you interact with this sign when you approach it? Some of you are like, oh gosh. When you approach this sign, we have a behavior modifier on every single road in our nation. It's telling you how to behave. But we all know that a lot of us, in fact, most of us probably, our behavior doesn't match what's on this sign. Why? Because your, your motivations are everything to that behavior. Some of you, you have the motivation. The motivation is, I, I, the motivation is fear. When you see the sign, out of fear, you drive what it says. And fear can be a decent motivator, but it's never, it never lasts fear. As soon as any other motivator comes that's stronger than that fear, it will overrun your motivation of fear and you will go over the speed limit. The motivation of being late for school, late for a date, late for a meeting, late for work, and now that fear of getting caught, that fear of getting a ticket goes out the window. Some of your motivation is, I don't care what the government's gonna tell me how fast to drive, I'm going fast. And that's your motivator. And this, uh, this thing right here that's about trying to modify your behavior, it might as well not even be there. The only time you even notice it is when you see a cop on the side of the road. It's the only time you notice it. Some of you, when you see this sign, this is what happens. You, this sign is treated basically like a yellow light for you. You see it, and it says 20 or 70 or whatever, but you think immediately, yeah, but how far over 70 can I go before I get, is it seven? By the way, let me ask. How many of you think it's five over? What about seven over? Eight? Where's my double digit folks in the room? Anybody? Yeah, look at all you. The police would like to get your make and model before we leave here. Um, you got double digits in the room. Some of you do calculations, like I can go 15% over. I can't do math that quickly because so I have no ability to figure that out. I'll tell you how, how kind of wicked my soul is. When I see this thing, this little thing, don't judge me for this, I almost always speed up when I see this. I wanted to get it to where it starts to blink at you. Uh, that's always my goal when I see this. And by the way, my car, I drive a 2003 gold uh, Chevy truck. And so you can come and find me. Any police officers in the room, by the way, that's Clark's car. I don't drive that at all. Um, so if you're gonna come and, and, and give me a ticket, that's Clark's car, I'm not gonna give you mine. Uh, we know that behaviors, they are keyed. They are driven by our motivators. And I think Paul knows this. We know this in parenting. Like, with my, these are my three kids. With, our, with your kids, by the way, all of us either have kids or you've been a kid, all right? So we know that if somebody just tells me, do what I say, that might be a decent motivator. But we know that for long-term change, long-term lifestyle, where you need more than just do what I say, or you're gonna get in trouble. Paul knows this. Look at what he does. He says, I want you to know how you are to conduct yourselves. And then he loads up these motivators because you're where God dwells. By the way, he does this all over the place. Look at his letter to the Corinthians. Flee sexual immorality. That, and that's really, really strong language for that culture and for ours. And by the way, he doesn't follow that with, because God will send you to hell if you don't. Be afraid. He doesn't follow it with, because God's a wet blanket for all the fun. Look at what he says. Flee sexual immorality, verse 19, same thing as Timothy. Do you not know that your bodies are temples? You're where God dwells. 
You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. It's not just Paul. The apostle Peter says he's gonna load up instruction on what it looks like to follow Jesus in a difficult pagan culture. But he starts it by saying, you're like living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house, a temple to be a holy priesthood. They know that our motivators matter, but ultimately it's driving to our behavior. If I'm delayed, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself in God's household. Look at what Paul has taught up to this point if you've been reading along with us. He's taught them about integrity and character. He's taught them about how, what it looks like to pray, how to approach their government. He's talking about what it looks like uh, to, to handle false doctrine, how to guard right teaching. He's talking about what it looks like to have right leadership and roles. He's talking about modesty. He's talked about a lot of things. He's gonna talk about more after this. Paul knows that what you do how you behave, and what you believe, how you think, it really does matter. In the big things and the small things, what you do matters. Like what you do on the weekends and what you look at on your phone and how you speak and how you treat people and how you parent, it all matters. What, you, what voices you let into your mind and into your heart, it matters. We've been called to live with a different king than the kings of our culture. And his name is Jesus, and you're going, man, I'm not quite sure what it looks like to make Jesus my king. I'm just starting out on this. I need, a, re, I need a, recor- a course on how to do this. I'll give you one. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. The Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. Go reread it. It's Jesus' kingdom ethic on what it looks like to follow him as king. Our, Paul knows our behavior, our conduct matters. The Greek word here, it's anastrepho. I did some work on looking at this word, and it essentially means, the best translation I come up with is the lifestyle that we live out every single day. It matters. And I hear people say all the time, God's not that interested in my, what I do. He just wants me to, to figure out who I am, know my identity in him, the behavior, that's all legalism. God cares about my being, not my doing. Paul would say no such thing. Jesus would say no such thing. And by the way, that doesn't logically work either. Look at C.S. Lewis. I think this is really helpful. I just want you to contemplate this for a moment. Every time you make a choice, he says, the big things, the big choices, and the little small decisions, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is a state of war and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures and with itself. The big decisions and the little decisions, all of them matter. You're turning that central part of you, either more bending the knee to Jesus as king or something else in our culture as king the nature of God's church, the lifestyle of God's church. And lastly, if you're with me at least so far and you're going, man, okay, I get it. It's it's an amazing picture of what we are to be. And yes, okay, my lifestyle matters. My conduct matters. And how do I do this? How do I go out there and actually do this? Can I show you what most of us would do? This is not what Paul does. Philip Jensen is a commentator on 1 Timothy. He said it really well, so I'm just gonna quote him. Here's, I think, a lot of our natural inclinations and, and some of you are stronger than others. Okay, I, I wanna do that, good, thank you. Yes, I wanna go be the, the pillar of truth in the culture, and I wanna do that. Okay, how? Give me the six steps, here's what Jensen says. A modern guide, a modern guide to godliness would perhaps be called something like the six steps of godliness, 
and contain a list of things to do and not to do. Here's how you can make every day a Friday. Here's the 10 ways to be a better husband and the three keys to being a, a Christian businessman or a woman. And we, we, we want a list of things to do. Give me the list. Let me go do that. I can put that into action. And here's what's scary. A lot of us crave that. And those, that list of things to do usually results in one of two destinies. Some of us perform that list really well. We can get awfully self-righteous with it. And others of us, we can't ever make it down like the second thing on that list, and we can get awfully self-pitying and shame, and shame ourselves with it. Paul doesn't give us anything like this. In fact, he's going to combat this in the very next chapter. In the next chapter, he's going to have a group of people that are saying, we've got secret knowledge, and we've got a secret way to be godly and a secret way to please God. Uh, we can, if you abstain from certain practices, abstain from marriage and abstain from certain foods, then we get a special place with God. And Paul's going to say, that's not where the power of godliness comes from. That's not where the power of God's church comes from. So where does it come from? Look at verse 16. Zero in on verse 16. Paul says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs. This word godliness, it's uh, the word eusebia. And eusebia, uh, it's the idea of, it's a, it's, a, it's a word used a lot in Greek culture and philosophy to talk about the way that we live before the gods. How should we conduct ourselves before the gods? Godliness. Paul says, they're all wrong. All the ideas from the culture, wrong. The mis it's mysterious, but true godliness comes here. And he gives us six past tense passive verbs describing the work and the ministry of Jesus. He says, don't look at yourself, but look at Jesus. Look at what he says. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The power for the church, the power for how we do this, it doesn't come from our behavior modification. It comes from looking at Jesus and beholding the gospel. A lot of scholars see this as three couplets. It's very poetic, this, the form of this. The coming of Jesus at Christmas, he appeared in the flesh. He lived the life that we should live. He was vindicated by the Spirit. I want you to write down next to that Romans 1, 3 to 5. Romans 1, 3 to 5. In, the, in Romans 1, Paul says that the, the resurrection, it is the, he's res, Jesus is resurrected by the power of the Spirit, which vindicates that he is Israel's Messiah and the world's true king. He came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And in his resurrection, it is the testimony to the world that the power of sin and death and, and injustice has been defeated on the cross and that he has been resurrected in victory over it. And that message has been proclaimed to the spiritual world, was seen by angels, proclaimed to the nations. And it has to do with the victory of our king. He's taken his place in glory. He's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And there he rules and reigns as king. Sin and death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Jensen says, a modern guide would be, give me the six steps to have every day a Friday. But what Paul gives Timothy is a list of six things that God has already done in Christ. The power for your life and my life as we live in a difficult world that doesn't understand the way of Jesus, our power for that, it comes from beholding Jesus, from 
simmering in that gospel message every day. And I love how Tim Keller summarizes it. Here's how he says, here's how he states it. And we'll close here. He says it so often, I don't even know where to quote him from. So I'm just gonna, I just put it like this. This says, religion sounds something like this. I obey. I do what the gods ask. In this case, Christian God, I go to church, I do the right stuff, I try to be a good person. And on the basis of my obedience, maybe God will accept me. He'll bless me, give me a good life. It's just like the ancient Greco-Romans. It's what most Christians that I run into now live out. It's what I did for the first several years of trying to follow Jesus, what I did growing up. I thought, I need to do everything right and then maybe God will accept me. And guess where it leads? Either self-righteousness. Look, I'm obeying. How come they can't obey like me? Or the opposite, at least a tons of shame. I'm just a disappointment. But the message of the gospel is gonna be essentially the opposite. I am accepted by the finished work of Jesus. He appeared, he's vindicated, he's taken his place in glory. And on the, because of the work of Jesus, and only because of the work of Jesus, now I go out and live my lifestyle in light of him as the king. That difference is everything. I was talking with a guy a couple weeks ago and I just simply asked him, and I'm gonna ask you this. Have you broken through from religion to living out the gospel? You're the dwelling place of God in this world if you're in Christ in this room. Have you pushed through? Are you living out every day? This is what he's accomplished on my behalf. And now he's living in and through me and everything I go do today is the very hands and feet of the creator and good God. Have you broken through? You're simmering in the gospel. By the way, for all of us in the room, whether you're in Christ or not, daily you have to break through because our hearts run back to that top one. You've broken through. I'm just gonna give you a moment just to process that as we're gonna turn to, to sing. We get some amazing truths about the nature of the church has implication in our lifestyle. And this is what fuels it, the message of Jesus and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing idea. Only Christianity would have the audacity and the boldness to bring the creator God, the transcendent holy one, into broken vessels, broken jars of clay like us. Only Christianity has the audacity to bring God down to that level and what a beautiful picture it is though. And the only way this works is when we've been dead and crucified with Jesus and raised to new life. And in Christ, we become the very temples of God. And collectively as we sing, we form the temple of the living God, the house of God, the pillar, the foundation of the truth. But Jesus, it's built on the cornerstone, your finished work. So help us just to, even right now, to soak that in as we turn now to give you glory, our King. We love you, Jesus, and pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's sing. Let's stand together and sing this. In the darkness we will wait without hope, without light, till from heaven you came run. There was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and promise to
Did not 
from Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thank you. 
if you want to see the dwelling of God in this world, then just look around. The Spirit of God dwells where God's household, the church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. And what we do matters in light of that. If you got questions about that, if you if you want to know what it looks like to push through from maybe religion to the gospel, we would love to process that with you. I'll be right here. Our prayer room is open. If you need prayer, if you want to celebrate something going on in your life, then walk through those doors. We'd love to celebrate or pray with you. Fellowship Fayetteville, we love you. Have a great week. We'll see you all next week.